The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who on this day taught the hearts of Your faithful people by sending to them the light of Your Holy Spirit, grant us by the same Spirit to have a right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in His holy comfort. Through Jesus Christ, Your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with You in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, I see the Reverend Brad Wilson out there. I think he wants his job back, so... Uh, <laughs> I'm not ready to give it up just yet, but give me a month and I'll let you know. So, Brad, welcome back. Uh, Brad was doing a, a wedding here this weekend uh, at my request, and so, Brad, we're delighted to have you back here, and uh, thank you for the good work that you've done here at St. Philip's that has made my transition all the easier. So, God bless you. I'm glad to see you. Now, go down there and go down there and straighten out those difficult Bufortonians, if you will. So, be greatly appreciated. Well, welcome back again. Last week we started a series on the Sermon on the Mount, on the Beatitudes in particular. Uh, we said we'll see how far we actually get in this, and I see a number of you actually did, in fact, bring your Bibles today. So, praise the Lord. I know that some of you didn't bring them, but love covers a multitude of sins. So, we'll trust that you'll bring them again next week. Um, yes, I am reading out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have a different translation, and that's perfectly fine. I'm just letting you know what I'm reading out of, so if you see the translation is somewhat different, you're aware of why that is the case. But you can use whatever translation you use. Um, uh, the authorized version, of course, is beautiful in terms of its language. It's not the most accurate translation of the Bible. Um, but I encourage you to have a modern translation, but the NIV or the ESV or the RSV, those are all fine translations. And sometimes having a slightly different translation actually illuminates the text. Um, so um, that'll be the case next week when you hear the gospel lesson. But today we are, are going to continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, for those of you who were not here with us last week, just a very brief uh, review uh, we said that since the time of the Reformation, it has been the practice, particularly in Protestant circles, to speak of the ministry of Jesus Christ in terms of three categories. The categories of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, when we speak of Jesus as the prophet, we don't necessarily mean someone who foretells the future. We're not talking about somebody who's like a, a Nostradamus who makes prognostications. That's not what we're talking about. But a prophet, particularly in the Old Testament, was one who spoke on behalf of God who spoke the words of the Lord, who spoke the oracles of God. And that is certainly what Jesus does. He is the ultimate prophet in that sense. He is the Word made flesh, and so He speaks the Lord's words to us. He is also, of course, the priest because He is the one who came into this world to save us from our sins. And the means by which He did that, of course, was His atoning sacrifice upon the cross. And what's unique about Jesus is that He's not only the priest, the one who makes the sacrifice, he is also the victim. He is the sacrifice. So Jesus is the ultimate high priest, as the author of Hebrews puts it. But of course, Jesus is also a king. Now we hear a great deal about those first two categories. Most of us don't think a great deal about the kingship of Jesus Christ. But this was a major theme of Jesus' ministry. This was a major theme of his ministry. When John the Baptist first appeared on the scene, he was telling the people to repent. Why? Because he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why the people were to repent, because the kingdom 
had arrived. In Jesus' own teachings throughout Matthew chapter 13, he tells a whole series of parables. And almost every single one of those parables begins with the words, and the kingdom of God may be likened to, or the kingdom of God is like. So all of the parables that Jesus tells are parables about the kingdom of God. We see even in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. One of the things that he taught them was to say what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And indeed, the kingdom of God was the whole reason for Jesus' death. When the Jews brought Jesus before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the charge that was brought against him was that he was what? Claiming to be a king, and the Romans had no king but Caesar. And it was on that basis, of course, that Jesus was crucified. And even when he's crucified, Pontius Pilate had a placard nailed above his head, which read what? The King of the Jews. So we need to understand that this is a major theme. The kingdom of God is a major theme of the New Testament. Indeed, you cannot even understand, we said, the message of the Bible apart from this message of the kingdom. It's really, and I described this last week, borrowing a phrase from N.T. Wright, getting the Adam Project back on track. Now, I think I've probably confused a few people about that. So here's the basic gist of it. Just as a, this is a quick review. The Adam Project was God's great plan, if you will, for the world. Not, not just for humanity, but for the whole of creation. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, you'll recall that God created the world. And after each successive day of creation, He pronounces a benediction, a blessing on it. God looks at what He's made and He says what? This is good. This is good. This is good. But the pinnacle of God's creative activity is what? It is mankind. And that word Adam is an interesting word. It can be a proper name, but it can also be generic for humanity as a whole. So God makes man, but man is the pinnacle of God's creative activity. God makes Adam, mankind, his region over creation. And it is the responsibility of man to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. Now what an honor that is. Mankind is unique in that we are made in God's image. No other creature is. This is why I said to you, if you're ever in this kind of moral dilemma where your neighbor is out there drowning in the lake, remember this last week? Your golden retriever is out there drowning in the lake and you hate your neighbor, but you love that golden retriever. Which one are you really supposed to save? Not the golden retriever. You save the neighbor. Why do you save the neighbor? You save the neighbor because the neighbor is a man or a woman. A human being made in the image of God. A reflection of His glory and majesty. And that's what we were created to be. A reflection of God's glory and majesty. And as I said, to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. But man was not satisfied with being second best. We wanted to be number one. And we said that is the root of all sin. The sin of Eden was not that somebody ate of a tree. The sin of Eden was that they ate of the tree that they might be like God. And listen, folks, that is the root of all sin. To be like God means you are the master of your own fate. You are the captain of your own destiny. You're in charge. Uh, this is one of the reasons, incidentally, why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, and I like our version better than the Presbyterian version. They say, forgive us our debts. We say, forgive us our what? 
trespasses. And that's a much better word because that's what sin is. Sin is a trespassing onto God's territory. That's what sin really is. It's a trespass into God's territory. If you recall your ancient history, you'll recall that when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, he spoke those words, the die is cast. As long as he remained on his side of the Rubicon and the Senate remained on their side of the Rubicon, there was peace. But if he crossed over, there was what? War. He was trespassing. Well, when you and I sin, when we do the things that we do in order to be in charge, to be the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own destiny, we are trespassing on God's territory. And that is serious business. We are, in essence, doing what Caesar did. Declaring war on God. And here's the problem with that. You're not going to win. Nobody can win when you declare war on God. And so we all know the story of the fall. Genesis chapter 3. Mankind fell. The consequence, the wages of sin is what? Death. And they died. They died spiritually their relationship with God was severed. When He came walking in the cool of the day, where were they? They were hidden. They died morally. That is, they, they no longer had that ability to discern right from wrong. Adam, what is it that you have done? The woman thou gavest me. How many of you remember those? Those are words to live by, aren't they? The woman thou gavest me. She caused me to do this. And, and, and what did the woman say when God turns to her? The serpent. And there's this blame game you see that we always do. Nobody wants to take responsibility for their own actions anymore. And here's the really interesting and the terrible thing about what Adam actually said. He wasn't actually blaming the woman. He said, the woman, you gave me. So who is he blaming? He's blaming God. And so often in our lives, isn't that what we do? So they died morally. And of course, they died physically. And that is the consequence of sin. But here's the amazing thing. God is not about to let His plan and His purpose for His creation be thwarted by man's sinfulness. And so, right then, God begins the process by which you and I and all of creation will one day be redeemed. All of creation fell when Adam fell. That's why Paul says all of creation moans as in travail, longing for redemption. But God is in the process of getting that Adam project, which went off the rails in Genesis chapter 3, back on the rails. And He's doing that how? Well, He chooses a particular man called Abraham. And through Abraham, He calls a particular people, Israel. And through Israel, there comes a particular Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the new Adam. He is the one who keeps the law that Adam broke. And in Jesus Christ, God creates a new Israel. A new nation. A people who are to live and to conduct themselves in such a way that they are a reflection of what Adam was supposed to be all those centuries before. And God gets the project back on track. And the whole purpose of the church is to live as the citizens of that new kingdom. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom living in a fallen world. So this is big stuff. This is not, as you heard me say on my first Sunday, just about getting your ticket punched and going to heaven when you die. That's icing on the cake. This is about the redemption of the whole of creation.
And you and I, as the citizens of this new kingdom, as the subjects of this new king, are the means by which God is breaking His kingdom into the world. Now, we said this is a misunderstood kingdom. It's a real kingdom. But the disciples, when they heard the kingdom of God, and when we read the kingdom of God, most of us tend to think of a physical kingdom. That's what, the, that's what they were familiar with. Uh, they believed that when the Messiah came, He would restore the Davidic dynasty, the golden days of Israel's history. Or He would at least establish a kingdom not unlike the Roman Empire that they had seen, except that God would be the sovereign. But that was not actually the case. The type of kingdom that God came to bring was not a physical kingdom. Jesus came to bring a what? A spiritual kingdom. And this is basically where we left off last week. Jesus comes to bring a real kingdom, but it is a spiritual, not necessarily a physical kingdom. It is a kingdom that does not advance by force of arms or by political ideology. It is a kingdom that advances one soul, one transformed soul at a time. Now, of course, most of the time when we hear that word spiritual, we think to ourselves, oh, I know what that means. Spiritual. That's up there. That's ethereal. But it has no practical value for us right here. Isn't that what we think? I mean, really. I mean, we're supposed to be spiritual people, but let's be honest. How many, how many spiritual people do we really like to be around? As, as somebody once said to me, as, somebody, you know, as, as they said, you know, he was so spiritual-minded he was of no earthly good to anyone. And there are people like that. And sometimes we hear that word spiritual and we think to ourselves, yeah, but that's just not a real, really any practical value. What I want to show you is that absolutely it is. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, which is a, a great place for us to turn on this day of all days, because today is the Feast of Pentecost. And if you have your Bibles and you're in Acts chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 6. Now, of course, this is after the resurrection. Um, the disciples' hope has been restored. Uh, they had left everything in order to follow Jesus. Um, he had told them throughout his three years of ministry with them that he was going to establish a kingdom. They were hopeful about that. In fact, on one occasion, two of them sent their mother to ask Jesus that they could sit at his right hand and his left hand when he came into his kingdom. They wanted to be close to that position of power. And Jesus had to explain to them it wasn't that kind of a kingdom. They still didn't get it. And I'd like to say that the resurrection changed all of that, but the resurrection didn't change anything. They still didn't understand, and we see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking, all right, well, you were crucified, all of our dreams were dashed to pieces, but now you're back, raised from the dead. You can't keep a good man down. Now, certainly you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? And look at Jesus' response. Verse 7, He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be My witnesses. 
when the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Greek word here for power is a really interesting one. If you were in the 8 o'clock service, the 8.15 service this morning, you heard me mention it in the announcements. The Greek word for power in this text is the word dynamis. When Alfred Nobel made the discovery which would make him famous, an explosive power, the likes of which the world had never witnessed before, he went to a friend of his who was a Greek scholar and he says, what is the Greek word for explosive power? I need a name for my new invention. And his friend said, the Greek word is dynamis. And he said, good, that's what I'll name my invention. And he called it dynamite. All right? So when Jesus says a power will come upon you, he meant an explosive power, the likes of which the world had never witnessed before. And they were going to be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, that is where they lived. In Judea and Samaria, beyond where they lived. And to the ends of the earth. And today is the Feast of Pentecost and we are celebrating the coming of that Holy Spirit that dynamic power of the Holy Spirit came and filled those men. The third person of the Trinity filled them with His power and they went out and they became His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you and I are sitting here in St. Philip's Church in Charleston, South Carolina today as a consequence of that. Now you just ponder that for a second. That's what was happening here. And what is amazing is that over the course of the next 300 years, the greatest empire the world had ever known, the Roman Empire, was brought to its knees by Christians going out and sharing their faith without a shot being fired, without the shedding of blood, but by the peaceful witnessing to the God of grace and mercy and forgiveness, the greatest empire in the world was brought to its knees. Now let me tell you something. That's a powerful kingdom. That is a powerful kingdom that triumphs over all other kingdoms. Now, of course, it's not a fully realized kingdom. We haven't fully realized it. But there is a promise that the kingdom of God will not be stopped. Revelation chapter 11. Last book of the Bible. Easy to find. You will know these words, but you will know them probably not because they come from Revelation, but because they come from Handel's Messiah. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, And the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And what? He shall reign forever. Have you heard those words before? The hallelujah chorus, isn't it? Well, why is it the hallelujah chorus? It's hallelujah because one day the kingdoms of this world shall become, shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever. That is why King George III, when he first heard those words, could not sit. It was King George II, I think it was. He stood up. And that's why ever since, the tradition is when the Hallelujah Chorus is sang, everybody stands. Everybody stands. Because even the sovereign of Great Britain realize that there's a greater king and a greater kingdom. And even the kingdoms of this world shall one day become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. 
There's a great song, very popular in Great Britain. It was written around the time of World War I to commemorate those who had sacrificed, as you know. Uh, Britain lost a whole generation, over a million young men in the First World War, the Great War. And this song was written uh, to commemorate those who had died. It's a very patriotic hymn. If you go to England and you're there on any kind of patriotic occasion, whether it's Remembrance Day or the Sovereign's Birthday, you will always hear this hymn, this song sung. It goes like this, I vow to thee my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love. The love that asks no question, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best. The love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. Now you could just imagine a generation of young men has been lost. And this hymn has been written to commemorate their loss. Listen to the second stanza. I heard my country calling away across the sea, across the waste of water she calls and calls to me. Her sword is girded at her side, her helmet on her head, and around her feet are lying the dying and the dead. I hear the noise of battle, the thunder of her guns. I haste to thee, my mother, the son among thy sons. I'll be honest with you, I can hardly read through those stanzas without getting misty-eyed. But the third stanza is the most telling. But there's another country I heard of long ago. Most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know. You may not count her armies. You may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. Her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently her shining bounds increase. And all her ways are gentleness. And all her paths are peace. And soul by soul and silently her shining bounds increase. And all her ways are gentleness. And all her paths are peace. Another country. Another country, another kingdom, another king. The Sermon on the Mount is about you and me acknowledging the fact that we are actually the citizens of another country. We live here in the United States of America, but we are actually as Christians the subjects of another king, the citizens of another nation. I'll share with you a story. Some years ago, I led a pilgrimage uh, to Greece and to Turkey, following in the footsteps of St. Paul. This is one of the things I enjoy doing. Uh, as most of you know, I'm going to be gone next month leading a pilgrimage, uh, Celtic Christianity, toward Ireland. And several people have already asked me, are you going to do something like that for St. Philip's? And my hope is absolutely. I, I hope you like to travel, and I would be my great pleasure to take you in the footsteps of St. Paul, or better yet, take you to the Holy Land in the footsteps of Jesus. And some of you are probably thinking, I'm not going to the Holy Land. That's a bad place to go. How many of you are waiting for a good time to go to the Holy Land? You ain't ever gone. I got news for you. You're never gone. If you're waiting for a good time to go to the Holy Land, you'll never go. There's never been a good time for 2,000 years. Come with me. You'll be perfectly fine. And besides, when people die over there, they're resurrected. So it'll be great. 
We were following in the footsteps of St. Paul, and um, we had reached uh, the last leg of our journey. We were in Athens the next day. Um, we were going to return. We had been there that day to the Acropolis, and uh, we had seen the great temples of, of, of course, Athena and Hephaestus and uh, the great temple to Zeus. I mean, it was a marvelous, marvelous trip. And, uh, but the next day, we were leaving to go home. And uh, what we had with us on that trip was uh, a very talented lady, our organist choir master. And she's wonderful on the organ. She's great with the choir. But um, what she did before she ever became a church organist was she used to sing and play the piano in cabarets in New York City. So anytime we were in a hotel where there was a piano, she sat down and tickled the ivory and we had a sing-along. So we are in Athens, Greece at a four-star hotel and she sits down in the lobby and starts to play and all these Americans gather around. And I'm sure you know this, Americans have a tendency to stand out. Sometimes in good ways, sometimes in not so good ways. But we were there, we all gathered there in the lobby after dinner and she starts to sing and we're singing all kinds of songs show tunes from the sound of music and somebody you know saying you know various tunes from the phantom of the opera and everybody's just going along and we're having a great old time somebody even asked to play dixie and uh, we did we sang dixie just to make them happy we had a great time and people would drop in from time to time and and look at us you know that's interesting but the song that brought everybody in the lobby into that room to listen and to wait was when we always closed every night with God Bless America. And all of a sudden, the whole hotel fell silent. And we looked around, and there must have been 200 people that had gathered there in that lobby to see a group of 55 Americans singing of their allegiance and their loyalty to another country. That's what it's supposed to be for us as Christians. We are supposed to live our lives and to conduct our lives in such a way that the whole world stops and takes notice of the fact that you and I belong to another king. Let me ask you, is that true in your life? By the way you conduct yourself, by the way you conduct your business, by the way you deal with other people, I said it on my first Sunday here, by the way you deal with that young girl in the Harris Teeter line, can people tell that you belong to another king? That you are the citizen of another country? Well, that's what the Beatitudes are all about. They are a series of eight blessings. And I'm sorry, I don't know why that's going off the screen like that, but um, I'll try to fix it next week. But the Beatitudes are basically eight blessings. They are more descriptive than they are prescriptive. Alright? In other words, Jesus is not saying you must be like this. He is describing what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. So if you are a Christian, He's saying this is what your life will look like. He's not saying you better do this because the reality is none of us can do the things described in the Beatitudes or in the Sermon on the Mount in and of our own power. We simply haven't the ability to do it. I mean, think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is always patient, always kind. 
Aren't Christians supposed to be loved? Isn't love the cardinal virtue of the Christian life? Let me ask you a question. How many of you are always patient and always kind? Let me see a show of hands. Come on. And I always say, here's one for the men. Love is not easily angered. Oh, yes, yeah, see, everybody starts elbowing their husbands. Love is not easily angered. Well, here's one for the women. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Who can do that in and of their own power? I can't do that in and of my own power. We can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same is true for the Beatitudes. So these are descriptive, not prescriptive. Jesus is simply telling us, as he does later in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll know them by their fruits. Good works do not save anybody. You need to understand that. You're saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man may boast. Good works save nobody. But good works are the fruit of salvation. They are the evidence of salvation. They are the evidence of the fact that a person has been transformed and changed. And that's what Jesus is describing here. The fruits. The fruit of the Christian life. And that means that while it's impossible to fulfill the standards of the Sermon on the Mount without regeneration... They are nevertheless a good diagnostic tool for our spiritual health. To simply tell people that they need to live, as people live here in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus describes it here, is someone that said, it's like preaching Isaiah chapter 11 and the bliss of the millennium to a lion. Isaiah chapter 11 says that the lion shall lie down with a lamb. That's what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God. There shall be peace. That shalom, that peace which passes human understanding. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Now, how many of you have ever been to the zoo? What happens if a lamb wanders into the lion's den? That's right. It's mutton for dinner. That's what's going to happen. So we are not talking again about this is the way you must live. Jesus is saying, if you are a follower, this is how you will live. So as we go through these Beatitudes, ask yourself, is this a reflection of my life? And if you discover that it's not, there's still hope. Sanctification, first of all, is a process. But maybe if you're not even being sanctified, regeneration is what you need. But there's still hope for you. So turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just go ahead and read through these Beatitudes, and then we'll come back and take a look at the first one today. And seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said the first sign of a citizen of the kingdom of God is that they are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what does Jesus mean when he talks about being poor in spirit? Well, he's not talking about financial condition. Uh, It's interesting, in Luke chapter 6, in that version of the sermon, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And if we were only left with Luke's version of the story, you might think that it's a virtue to be poor. And there's no question about the fact, Jesus is very clear, being wealthy can be a spiritual liability. And we just have to acknowledge that, folks. And we are all, every single one of us, by the standards of the world, wealthy people. And Jesus made it very clear, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a what? A rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the rich don't feel their need for God. Everything they need, they can supply for themselves. But nevertheless, that's not what Jesus is talking about because here in Matthew, he doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. So we're not talking about a financial condition here. Nor are we talking about a depressive condition, a lack of self-esteem. We've all known people that have a lack of self-esteem. But that's not what Jesus means by poor in spirit either. You and I, of all people, should have confidence We should have self-esteem. Why? Because as we've said, we've been made in the image of God. We are a reflection of His glory. We are of infinite value, so much value, that God sent His one and only Son to come and die upon a cross to save us. So obviously, we're not talking about a depressive condition here. What Jesus is really talking about is a realistic understanding of who and what we are before a holy God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge who you are in relationship to the God of the universe. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 6 for just a moment. In the Old Testament. Now you'll see we're going to go back and forth, and if you're not accustomed to being with me, this will be a little bit of a workout for you. But... Don't be shy. What I'm going to show you is that these are the witnesses of the whole of Scripture. This is the witness of the whole text rather than just a portion of it. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we have this wonderful passage generally read at ordinations. It's Isaiah's great vision of the heavenly kingdom. And here's what we read in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, What? Woe is me! For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I love the fact that in verse 3, God is described as holy. Do you know that of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, and you can just think of all the adjectives that are used, righteous, He is merciful, He is loving. He is long-suffering. All of these wonderful adjectives that we have, the one that is used more than any other in the pages of Scripture to describe God is holy. 
He is holy. And when I mean He's holy, I mean He is holy other. You know, most of the time, the way we think about holiness is just completely off target. We tend to think that holiness is like a scale. And up here is perfect holiness at the top. 100%, right? And that's God. And then down here at the bottom is 0% holiness, and that's the devil. And everybody else that has ever lived falls somewhere on that scale. Isn't that what we think? And so you've got the real villains of history. They're down here toward the bottom. And then you work your way up, and most of us are probably at 50%. We're probably hoping we're a little bit better than 50% because we're trusting that God grades on the curve. So we're hoping that maybe we're a little bit higher than that so that we get in, you know, maybe 60%, 70%, and then you work your way up the scale, don't you? And, and you've got the, the really holy people. You get up to about 80%, and, and, and then you've got Mother Teresa. And, and then you get, you know, close to, 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 to 90%, and that's maybe Billy Graham. And then you go a little bit further up there, around 92.5%, and that's the clergy of St. Philip's. And... and, and <laughs> And that's the way we think about it, isn't it? And we forget that God is not even in the same category. He is in a totally different category from you and from me. And when Isaiah sees himself, and he sees himself in relationship to God, he says, woe is me. I thought I could compete. I thought I was pretty good. Let me tell you something. Pewter looks fine when it's polished unless you put it next to polished sterling silver. Then it doesn't look the same, does it? You can tell the difference. One of my favorite books is um, by Oscar Wilde's story, The Picture of Dorian Gray. Any of you ever read The Picture of Dorian Gray? If you have, you know the story. And Dorian basically is a narcissist. He has a painting done of himself. He falls in love with himself. He makes a deal with the devil. And the deal with the devil is that he will not age. But of course, when you make a deal with the devil, there's always a price. And Dorian, because he hands over his soul to the devil, starts on this downward path. He does all kinds of terrible, wicked things. He uses people. He, he murders. He abuses. And with each particular sin, he doesn't age. But his portrait does. With each sin that he commits, he doesn't age physically, but that magnificent portrait that he had done in the prime of his life, it ages. And it gets so grotesque, so horrible looking, that eventually Dorian takes a drape and puts it over the picture so that nobody has to look at it, so that he doesn't have to look at it. We see what God does in the Sermon on the Mount. What he did for Isaiah there is he pulls back the curtain. And he forces us to look at ourselves not as we imagine ourselves to be, but as God knows us to be in comparison to Him and His holiness. And when Isaiah sees that, he says, woe is me. How many of you like the hymn Amazing Grace? How many of you, just, how many of you want that at your funeral? Everybody does. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that what? You really believe that? You really believe that you're a wretch? 
You know, I found it very interesting that everybody can sing that song with gusto and get tears in their eyes, but if the preacher climbs into the pulpit and calls them a wretch, they're in trouble. Do we really see ourselves as wretched? See, that's the challenge you see. This was the issue with the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son. He rebelled against his father, wanted his inheritance. He went off into a far land, squandered it on loose living. Let me ask you a question. When did the prodigal get converted? Everybody thinks it's when he lost everything. Or they say, when he's down there in the pigsty, and the Scripture says he comes to his senses. Let me tell you something. What happened in the pigsty is he had a change of mind. He did not have a change of heart. He had a change of heart when he got home and realized what he deserved from his father was to have the door slammed in his face. And instead, the father opened the door, put a ring on his finger, killed the fatted calf, and that's when the man was converted. Because you see, the law will never convert anybody. Guilt will never convert anybody, but grace will do it every time. But he had to see himself for what he really was to appreciate who his father was. The same is true for us. That's why we do what we do in the liturgy. Liturgy is a wonderful thing, folks. Never think that we can live without it. This is why when we come forward for communion, we come in what posture? On bended knee. Did you ever notice that? We come on bended knee and we come with our hands held high. What is that the posture of? That's the posture of a beggar. And every time we do that, we are acknowledging that is what we are before God. We are nothing but beggars. The prayer of humble access says we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under Thy table. But Thou art the same Lord whose property is always. What? Sometimes, 90% of the time, always to have mercy. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It doesn't mean you have to give away everything that you have like St. Francis did. It does mean you need to be responsible in the use of your wealth and your material possessions, particularly when it comes to the service of the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that you have to beat yourself up. It simply means you acknowledge what you are in the presence of a mighty and holy God and you throw yourself completely, wholly, totally on His grace and mercy. This hymn was written by an Anglican priest most of us think it probably was a Baptist hymn. But it was actually written by an English priest. I'm sorry, I don't have a better copy of it up there, but you know the words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side that flow. Be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. But the third stanza is the one I want to draw your attention to. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. 
helpless come to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. Those are wonderful words. Listen to them the next time you sing them. Those words are a picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. And those who are poor in spirit, what will happen to them, Jesus says? Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, this is not meant to be prescriptive. It's meant to be descriptive. We're supposed to take a good hard look at our lives and say, do we really see ourselves in that way? I'll never forget when I first came to St. Helena's and started to preach there. A lady, an elderly lady, was a long-time member of that congregation. She had been there from the beginning. 1712, I think. <laughs> but I remember she came up to me one day and she said, you know, until your predecessor got here, I, was a, I thought I was a pretty good person. And he preached that I was a sinner. And she said, I took great offense at that, but she said, I want you to know, I realize I'm a sinner. I said, well, praise the Lord. She said, now you've come. I said, well, what does that mean? She said, now I realize I'm a miserable sinner. <laughs> Do you see yourself that way? Are you poor in spirit? Because if you are, the kingdom of God belongs to you. Because you're not trusting in yourself. You're not counting on your own ability. You are relying wholly and completely on the God whose property is always to have mercy. I had one other lady in the congregation she died at 103. And um, she had been a churchgoer all of her life, but she would have told you, and I had the privilege of burying her, and I, she preached the sermon for me. I'll be honest with you. She preached the homily at the funeral for me because of her last words to me. Her name was Mary Batchelor. She had a gruff voice. She was just a character. She used to answer the phone for us, and she'd answer the phone, she'd say, St. Helena's. And they'd say, yes, sir. I'm not a sir. I'm a woman. And she, she's just a character. I loved her. But Mary was a long-time churchgoer, but she would have told you she had never been converted. She never really knew what it meant to be a Christian. And one day I gave her a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Grace Unknown. And she read that little book. And she came up to me one day and she said, I now understand what it's all about. And at that point, she had been diagnosed with cancer and she knew she was dying. And I said, Mary, you're going to see the Lord one day. And she said, I know. And I said, what are you going to say to Him? Think about this for yourself. When you see the Lord someday, what are going to be the first words out of your mouth? And Mary turned to me and she said, my first words when I behold the Lord in all of His glory are going to be, have mercy. Well, I know where Mary Batchelor is today. She was poor in spirit. And the kingdom of heaven belongs to her. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. We thank you for Jesus, for this sermon that he preached. Grant us the grace, Lord, to be touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, especially on this Pentecost. Grant us the grace to see ourselves as you see us, not as we imagine ourselves to be, not with the facade, with the mask that we put on, but grant us the grace to pull back the curtain, to see ourselves as we really are, that we may see you as you really are, a holy, righteous, sovereign Lord, whose kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting, but a God and a King whose property is always to have mercy. We beg this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you.